And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany and the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Well, Father, we ask your help uh, this morning that we would find the great joy of the character of our King that has come to save us. Thank you for sending your son so that sinners like us could find the things that make for peace and find the blessed relationship that is Emmanuel, God with us through his death on our behalf. Would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Some journeys end on a high note. Uh, back in November of 1806, there was a group of people that had set out 18 months from before from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm speaking of the Lewis and Clark expedition. After the Louisiana Purchase, they had been sent out by the president to map out the new territory the United States had got, uh, expecting to find a northwest passage that would connect the Mississippi through waterways to the ocean. When that didn't turn out to be what the geography actually held, they continued their journey over the treacherous, difficult territory, through mountains, across rugged, desolate plains, until finally, 18 months and 4,000 miles after they started, they reached the end of their journey. I'll read from Clark's journal. 
Great joy came in the camp. We are in view of the ocean, this great Pacific Ocean, which we have been so anxious long to see. Imagine the great joy there must have been, knowing that their journey's end had finally arrived. They found the ocean and learned so much along the way. Some journeys have a very joyous end to them. Uh, maybe you had that experience over the holidays, traveling somewhere with kids saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And there's a particular joy to saying, yes, we're there. Uh, our passage this morning shows an end to a very long journey. Um, Luke has, for 10 chapters, been telling us that Jesus and his disciples have been on the road heading toward, of course, Jerusalem. Along the way, we've seen him doing miracles and preaching messages and the whole time preparing them for what will happen once he reaches the city. Well, 10 chapters after he first introduced that theme, we see Jesus and his disciples finally arriving. They finally get within eyeshot of the city walls. And yes, there's some joy, but surprisingly, there's also even more sadness. But this morning, as we look at this narrative, something else will come into view. Joy in our own hearts as we examine the attributes or the character of our king that has come to save us, the man, Jesus Christ. This morning, that's how our sermon will be structured, around four aspects of the character of King Jesus that lead us to joyous praise. Uh, the first is that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Luke begins in verse 28, telling us that they were going up to Jerusalem. That is, they're getting very close. Verse 29 tells us how close. They are on the outskirts, Bethphage and Bethany. That's the east side towns right on the lead up to Jerusalem itself. And the time when this is happening would have been during the Passover, uh, which meant that the city itself and the outlying villages would have had their population swollen with pilgrims coming to do their duty before God. Which means that Jesus and his disciples have a golden opportunity to continue doing what Jesus has done a number of times before, and that is to fly under the radar. If Jesus didn't want to attract attention, all he had to do at this moment is keep his head down and blend in with the crowds, and before you know it, he and the disciples would be inside of Jerusalem and no one would be the wiser. But Jesus has something else in mind because he understands what's happening is more than just a journey to a city. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of a mission started in eternity past. We see that Jesus has a plan in mind as he begins to give the disciples instructions in verse 30, saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If someone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus tells his disciples, takes two of them off, says, hey, go into the town over there and get me a ride. Easy enough, okay. Um, the odd part is he has very specific instructions about how to get this ride. You're gonna go into the town and then you're gonna find a colt or a donkey tied up to a post. And you're not going to ask anyone, you're just going to walk up and start untying it. And if someone stops you and asks what you're doing, you'll say, ah, 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 someone needs it. 
It's going to be okay. And strangely enough, they're going to let you go. And of course, it happens just the way Jesus said it would. They go, they find the donkey tied up to a post. They untie it. The owners stop them. Hey, what are you doing? Uh, uh, the Lord has need of it. And they're like, okay, that's good enough for me. Now, needless to say, that is a strange way to go about getting a trusty steed to ride on. Um, if you go to the local car rental business and you just decide to help yourself to one of the cars, uh, you should not expect the explanation of, if someone tries to stop you of, uh, uh, someone needs it to get you anywhere except jail. Um, so why is Jesus doing this? I think that there are, there's a, a very important principle here that's being taught, and that is Jesus has kingly, sovereign authority. Uh, there's some commentators that take this whole passage and say, oh, well, Jesus must have clearly have made preparations ahead of time. Maybe he snuck into Jerusalem when no one noticed and told them the day he'd be showing up to have the colt ready. Or, or maybe he sent a different disciple that we don't hear about that made sure that they would be there in that place prepaying for it and the like. Now, while that would make Jesus a master of calendars and journey logistics, it doesn't do much to explain what's happening here. I think far better is what many other commentators have pointed out, that the way Jesus gives his disciples the instructions implies a certain level of authority. Jesus knows exactly where that colt is going to be tied because Jesus, as God, knows everything. Even more than that, Jesus has right to commandeer that ride because Jesus has an authority that goes far beyond all earthly ones, even our property claims. Uh, back in 1994, something happened that's almost straight out of the movies. In New York City, there was a police officer um, who had a criminal they had put in handcuffs uh, slip out of the restraints and cop in the squad car and took off. The officer had to do something. Can't let the bad guy get away after all, right? So he pulled out his badge and his gun and flagged down a Hyundai that was driving down the road and said, stop, police, I need your vehicle. The stunned passenger agreed. He jumped in the car and took off, caught the bad guy, only a few nicks and dents in the Hyundai. Now, it turns out that movies and TV shows are right. Police officers do have the authority to do that because they're acting as agents of our government, right? You can't just do that for fun, to have a joyride, but acting in the capacity of our community, they have that right. Well, Jesus certainly has more authority than an earthly police officer. Because, in fact, he has authority over everyone and everything that exists. Uh, Jesus is the one who, who through whom everything that exists was made. And he is the one for whom all of it was made for. There's not a single item of property not a single wallet that does not belong to him. As Phil Riken put it, the donkeys tied to a thousand posts already are his. So if Jesus wants to make use of it, because after all, the Lord has use of it, he has full rights to do so. And yet, did you notice that he did so in such a way that the owners of this donkey knew what was happening 
and heard the explanation from his disciples, the Lord has need of it. Could it be that Jesus intentionally wanted them to know, maybe even only after the fact, that their lowly donkey had bigger purposes than anything that they could have possibly imagined? That they were part of the glorious triumphal entry as the true king of God's people gloriously came into the city long foretold. Do you realize this about everything in your life? God owns every single bit of it. Uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says it this way. God owns everything. I'm just his money manager. Uh, it's true for everything we have in our lives, all our money, all our possessions, any material thing we have. It, it truly belongs to God as creator. He made this world and everything in it. And yet he does truly give us things to use very kindly to support ourselves and others. And even more than that, to be able to willingly let go of some of the things we have because we know that the Lord has use for it. Do you know that God doesn't need your resources to accomplish his will in this world? But by calling us to give and be generous, he allows us to participate in his work and even to fill our hearts with more joy than if we just saw him do it on his own. So every time you decide to give some money to a Christmas offering, like the one we're talking about, or picking up one of those boxes to mail off, or give to someone in need that God puts in front of you, the Lord is letting you release some of the things he's given you so that your joy will be fuller, knowing that the Lord has need of it. That should inform the way we give, not begrudgingly, but with a generous and glad heart. It also should inform the way we serve. Because it's not just material things like donkeys that Jesus has rights over. He has rights over all of our lives as well. Which means that that refrain, the Lord has use of it, could be something that you adopt for your own Christian life. Uh, if Jesus has purchased you body and soul, you don't live a life for yourself anymore. You live it wholly for him. And that means if he calls you to leave everything you have behind, to go off and be a missionary across the world, that he has every right to put that in front of you as an act of obedience. And that you'll find joy as you think of your own life. The Lord has need of it. I'm going to willingly let go of the things I love to serve him. In the same way, you, when you serve someone, Maybe using a little bit of your time to pack those boxes this weekend or go to your next door neighbors who maybe on the older side needs a little bit of companionship. You know Jesus wants you to use some of your valuable time to express God's love to them by spending time with them. You can have this thought in your heart. The Lord has need of it even for the free time I have this week. Or maybe it's just your day-to-day -day job that you work in your vocation. It doesn't seem like it's all that significant. Doing something in the back, working with spreadsheets, moving stuff around that no one really know, notices or thinks much about. And yet if your whole life has this caption over it, the Lord has need of it, then there is purpose and meaning to what the Lord has you doing even this week.
Oh, brothers and sisters, would you see your King Jesus sovereign over everything in your life, including your very life itself, and find joy in submitting to his kingly rule? He is sovereign. But that's very important to be matched with other character qualities. Someone who is merely sovereign could be a monster, which is why I'm so thankful for this next quality of his. He is humble. He is humble. Uh, Jesus has a very uh, uh, explicit set of intentions in choosing the particular steed he has for his triumphal entry. Uh, One of those intentions is undoubtedly the fulfilling of prophecy. Um, There was a tradition among Israelite kings to ride war horses in their triumphal uh, entry uh, when they would uh, after a battle. The, so, like King David, for instance, uh, rightfully so, horses were the equivalent of the ancient world's tanks. They would have an image of strength as they rode in front of the procession, declaring the Lord's victory. But there's a more ancient tradition that goes back all the way back to Genesis about a king that was to come. I'll read with me Genesis 49, verses 10 through 11. The scepter, that's the right to rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, is washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Already you see this promised king, the house of Judah, will have an unlikely steed, a a foal, a donkey. Same thing comes up in the prophets, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sometimes in Jesus' life and ministry, He's fulfilling prophecy, and it's almost as if he doesn't know it's happening. I don't know if he did or not, but it's effortless. This is an example where he is going out of his way to fulfill these prophecies and doing something that no one would have expected an earthly king to do because that's his second intention in this, not just fulfilling prophecy, but communicating his humility. It wasn't just Israelite kings that understood a powerful steed as a powerful asset in a triumphant parade. Uh, The Romans were experts at this. Uh, They loved to have triumphal entries. When they won a big battle or conquered a nation, the Caesar or the general would lead a great parade into the city. Their chariot would be pulled by the finest horses you could find. Uh, My favorite example was someone who thought that the horses weren't even good enough. Instead, he wanted to be pulled by eight elephants into the city. Um, It turned out the elephants were too big to fit through the arch going into the city, so they had this awkward moment where they had to disembark from the elephants and tie on horses and continue the rest of the way. But the the way of the world in Jesus' day was that the triumphant ruler, when he arrived, he carried a big stick. He rode a steed that showed everyone he was strong, and so you wouldn't mess with him. Jesus is very different. 
He's not like all the other kings of the earth. He's Lord of all, but he doesn't lord it over people. Which is why he rides upon a commoner's steed, a lowly donkey, to show he is humble and gentle and someone that can be approached. Our brothers and sisters, I think there is a set of applications here related to how we think of and even value humility when it comes to people in authority. Uh, it's been said that the most important thing about a person is the first thing that comes to their mind when they think about God. When you think about God or Jesus, does humility even enter into your mind in the top five? Or are there other attributes that more naturally come to our minds, like power, or strength, or even righteous zeal? Now, undoubtedly, Jesus has all those things. He is perfect in every way. And yet the way Jesus chose to show himself was as one who was humble, willing to lower himself. He did so first in his birth, being lowered from the very courts of heaven to be born to a teenager in the middle of nowhere, to have no standing whatsoever. He lived a humble life never accruing possessions for himself or trying to seek after social standing. And of course, even in the moment of his greatest glory, the cross, it's his moment of humiliation as he allows himself to be mocked and mistreated and ultimately murdered at the hands of his enemies. Well, if Jesus went out of his way to present himself first and foremost as one who is humble, then maybe we should value humility a little more, both in his character and in ours. It's a troubling thing when you realize the things that people value in leaders right now. I had a, a friend who's looking for a pastoral position, and so he's looking through all these job descriptions that are posted on the internet. And I was looking through one with him, trying to help him evaluate if it was a good fit. And it had all sorts of buzzwords that I think Christians are pretty familiar with uh, that tie into the way we think of authority in the world. They were looking for someone who is a dynamic leader, someone with conviction, someone who was bold. And as I went through the list with them, we were chuckling over how predictable it was because nowhere on there were the list of virtues that scripture actually holds up. Uh, things like humility and gentleness and patience. If we're not careful, we adopt the world's way of thinking of authority. And right now, the world values strong people who carry a big stick, who know how to use sarcasm to cut and down their opponents, who double and triple down when they're Someone points out something they've done wrong, never admitting any fault whatsoever, who use their authority for their own good and aren't embarrassed when it's discovered. But brothers and sisters, that's not the sort of king King Jesus is. And that's not the character we should value in anyone with authority. Uh, Jesus has all the authority of heaven and earth, and yet he is gentle and humble, 
and uses his authority for the good of others. I pray that we as a church would never adopt the world's way of looking at leadership. And that as we think of raising up pastors and elders and deacons and small group leaders or, or even just models for our Christian faith, that we would start with the character trait that Jesus leads with, with humility. Matched with that humility is something unique and special, and that is that Jesus is glorious. That's our third point. He is glorious. Uh, the disciples realize something special is happening. Uh, they realize that this is no mere just plain end to a journey, that this is a moment that's befitting of special honor for Jesus, which is why they take Jesus and they put him on that colt, that donkey, taking off their coats and using it for a saddle. Uh, and then they start leading him down the road, laying out the red carpet for him, one coat at a time in front. Well, as that happens, it seems like the multitude of disciples around them start catching on to the magnitude of the moment. Each step raises the joyous praise that is welling up in their hearts until finally it's too much. It breaks out in rapturous song. The way it's described, verse 37 the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now that marvelous music had a meaning underneath it. Uh, it's two quotations. Uh, the first comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was one of the psalms of ascent. It's what the Israelite pilgrims would sing on their way to worship God in the temple. But the people here substitute the one for the king. Uh, they realize that the Messiah is here. And blessed is he who comes to rule and reign over God's people. Uh, the second quotation I think Luke intentionally puts in front of us because it's, it hearkens to the heavenly music that the angels started all the way back at the beginning of Jesus' life. You remember when they showed up to the shepherds and they started declaring in the night sky that glorious message? Peace on earth, goodwill to those whom, with whom God is pleased, glory in the highest. Well, that angelic song has finally found its earthly refrain because the crowds are now singing the same thing. Peace, not just on earth, but in heaven itself because the agent of peace, God's king, the man Jesus Christ, has come. Now, as that rapturous song rung out, I'm sure their hearts must have resounded all the more but we can't have nice things because of the Pharisees. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus, that's not fitting for a rabbi. You should know better. Jesus, that's, that's excessive. Uh, rein in your disciples before they make more fools out of themselves. But look at the way Jesus responds. 
He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. According to Jesus, not only is it fitting, it's necessary. Because one of the character qualities of our king is that he is more glorious than anyone or anything. Uh, he is more glorious than a thousand quasars in the deep recesses of space that maybe one day we'll discover. He is fitting of all the songs, of all the birds that have ever flown in this world. He is more beautiful than all the sunrises and sunsets combined. Because he is God, very God, come taken on human flesh, the perfect one of heaven, who didn't hold on to the things that were rightfully his, but gave them up so that sinners like us could be saved. And the focal point of his glory is, in fact, counterintuitively, his crucifixion. How do you know that Jesus is glorious? You see him hanging, bearing the weight of sinful humanity. How do you know that he is worthy of praise? You see him risen from the dead, vindicated and reigning forever, sitting at the right hand of his father. Uh, Jesus is glorious, and our hearts only find the highest levels of joy when they're fully given to praising the glory of his name. I hope you love the Christmas season because there are so many wonderful songs that do this really well. Uh, they think, sing about the glory of Jesus and his incarnation, and yes, the cross and the resurrection and his second coming. But it's not just at Christmas time that our hearts should spend time pouring out praise to Jesus because he's always glorious. It's one of the reasons we as a church try so hard to make sure each and every Sunday we are singing songs that are focused on the central part of his glo glory, that is his work of redemption, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. If you come to church and you have the thought, wow, it feels like we're singing and talking and praying about the same thing each Sunday. Yes, exactly, that's the point. Because there's no aspect of Jesus that shines brighter than his glorious work of redemption to save sinners like you and I. Uh, brothers and sisters, I hope that you come to church with expectation that you will have your soul's attention redirected to the glorious Christ and that you are here to pour out your praise with your brothers and sisters, knowing that he is worthy of every bit of it. Now, honestly, I thought that that would be a fitting place for Luke to have ended this block of the narrative. Um, but as I studied it, I became convinced that he has one more portion to it, which ends in the minor key. It shows us not only the glorious character of Jesus, but also his compassionate character. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Well, that took me by surprise the first time I read it. Uh, Jesus has been longing to come to that great city. He has known the whole time that this is where his journey is going to end. His mission has to be accomplished there. 
all the trials, all the temptations, all the work of teaching and preparing himself and the disciples for what he must do, it was all leading to this moment where the city itself would finally be in his presence. And yet he gets there, and not like Lewis and Clark, he doesn't have joyous, rapturous happiness in his heart. Instead, his soul is filled with sadness. He weeps. I don't think it's wrong to say he weeps bitterly. Why would this be the case? Well, he explains his words, fill in why. His sorrow is due to his compassionate heart. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, what is it that rends his heart so deeply? Is it, it is that he knows what has already happened and what must happen as a result. You see, his whole life has been a peace offering from God to man. He is the olive branch that allows for sinners to no longer have the judgment of God be what they deserve, but instead to know that they are well, warmly welcome into the embrace of their heavenly father. And yet consistently, as he has begun revealing himself, he has received nothing but rejection. Uh, people have been closing their hearts to the visitation of God. That is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, they have been pushing away the very one that can open up to them joys without number. And without end. And finally, the appointed time of their rejection has been made full. And judgment has begun to fall. He says that their eyes are blinded. And now, assuredly, what was going to happen will happen. And what Jesus sees utterly breaks his heart. He sees what happened in A.D. 70. Uh, you see, the, the uh, zealots finally got what they had been agitating for for so long. They finally found some people who thought they had a big enough stick to go and whack Rome. Only it turned out Rome was much bigger and badder than they thought. After their rebellion started, Caesar sent his son Titus with an overwhelming army. It defeated the Jewish army and surrounded the city. And then Titus started to lay siege. He broke down all the walls. And then he laid waste to the city, tearing down each and every building and burning it all with fire, destroying everything that was there, including the people. Uh, when he was done, he left behind three things on purpose, three tall, mighty towers that were left untouched to communicate what used to be here, and what will never be here again. Because you don't mess with Rome. Now Jesus looks forward to that 
terrible judgment that was to come upon that generation that rejected him. But I think the most telling thing about all of it is not the prophecy that gets fulfilled, but his tone in telling it. Uh, Jesus is not gloating. There's not glee in his voice as he describes what will happen, even though the people he's describing it happening to are the very ones that will make sure that he is torn down and killed by being crucified on a cross. I think what Luke is highlighting here for us is the character quality of Jesus and his compassion, even for his enemies. Uh, Jesus, when he thinks of judgment falling, he does so with a tear in his eye and a crack in his voice. I think we need to have that same posture, that same tone, as we think about sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. Uh, Brothers and sisters, it's a true thing that we need to tell people that their sins deserve the wrath of God upon them. It is a true thing that we need to tell them that if they do not repent, then assuredly one day it'll be too late. But it can never be something we say with glib or glee, but always with a tear in our eye and a crack in our voice. If we communicate the truths of the gospel without the compassion of the king, then we distort the message. So my dear brothers and sisters, as you think about those whom you might have an opportunity this Christmas to talk about the true meaning of Christmas with, maybe they're family members or friends or coworkers, you can connect the dots between the holiday and the good news of God with us, come to save us from our sins. Make sure they hear the facts of the gospel, but make sure they know that you care for them. And that if they would turn from their sins and come to Jesus, there's all the compassion any sinner could need. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is undoubtedly the message that Jesus has for you. That it's not too late for you Uh, Judgment has not yet fallen upon you because you are hearing his olive branch offer. That which the Bible calls the gospel. The Bible tells us we're all sinners. That if God gave us what we deserved, it would be immediate and forever punishment under his judgment. But the good news is that God is compassionate and kind and full of abounding love. Which is why he sent Jesus to save sinners by giving his life in the place of theirs. That's what Jesus did when he hung on the cross. As he was being murdered, uh, God put our sins on Jesus and punished him in our place so that anyone who comes to God through him will find complete forgiveness and know that they'll never experience the terrible judgment of God. Three days after Jesus died, God raised him from the dead to prove that sacrifice had been accepted and to prove that his compassion truly is something that you can experience today, friend. Today can be the day when you understand the meaning of Christmas, where your heart rejoices with a joy that is unlike anything you've ever had before. But you must repent of your sins 
and trust Jesus to save you. Now, if you don't know how to do that, you're in a room full of people who have done just that and lived lives based on it, who would love to explain it to you. Look to someone to your left or your right, in front or back of you. I've already given you permission. Just ask them, how can I become a Christian? They would love to explain it to you. Now, for, but friend, one thing you must not do is assume that you will have forever to make this decision. One day, on a day none of us knows, it will be too late. Like it was for the inhabitants of that city once judgment fell upon it. Oh, friend, I don't want that for you. Put your trust in Jesus while there's still time. Now, brothers and sisters, even as we know the sobri with sobriety the uh, stark terror of the judgment to come, we also should have hope in our lives, even as we share the gospel with others, because we have chance still to introduce people to our compassionate Savior, and we know what he's like. He's not like the rulers of this world. Oh, yes, he is sovereign and glorious, but he's also humble and compassionate. He has a heart to save sinners and to bring those that are far close all by his grace. And each and every one of us are living proof that he's still like that. So as you think of the meaning of Christmas and talk to people about the gospel and even reflect on what he's done in your own life, most of all, would you remember the character of your Savior and let it fill your heart with joy? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, what a wondrous mystery that you, the one who rightfully was the theme of heaven's praises, would come be robed in frail humanity. Uh, that you who knew nothing but perfect acceptance and love and joy in a world full of love that is heaven would come close to sinners like us, bearing our sorrows and our griefs and our pain and even bearing the death we deserve so that we can experience true joy. Oh, Jesus, would you help us now to respond from hearts that are full, having considered your character and knowing the praise that is due for you, the king that has come to save his people. We pray these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.